music. Welcome to Shattered Lives, an informed, conversational, cutting-edge radio show in touch with today's issues that impact the lives of crime victims, addressing the aftermath of crime, forging a path for hope, building awareness, and empowering listeners for the future. This is Donna Argor, a.k.a. Lady Justice, your host, with my co-host, Delilah Jones, President of ImaginePublicity.com, welcoming you to today's show and to our library of weekly archive shows. It is our goal to make a difference. So I want to say um, good day, everyone, again on another Saturday. And indeed, we always pride ourselves on uh, quality shows, giving you good information, uh, diversity to increase awareness, and Always cutting-edge information, and today is no different. We have um, sort of a repeat offender (laughs) today, Um, (laughs) one of our favorites, um, Jennifer Bishop Jenkins, with her husband, Bill Jenkins, and I would kind of describe them as a a power couple um, in the crime victim advocacy world. Um, but before we bring him on live in just a minute, I um, just want to say good morning, Delilah, and uh, how are you? Um, what would you like to uh, impart about our, our esteemed guest today? Good morning. Um, I think these are these are the top cream of the crop guests, I call them, because they have done so much, been through so much tragedy, yet came out the other side and have done so much for other people, and you're right in the description of a power couple, especially, you know, when you're looking at benefiting benefiting victims of crime in so many different levels. So it's great to have them back, and it's great to have them back together. We've had them separately (laughs) before, but together. Yeah, it it makes it very special. So we we, we kind of formulated a special recipe here, but... Just to give you a little bit of a thumbnail sketch, um, both both of them are homicide survivors by virtue of having uh, very close family members um, um, murdered. Um, Jennifer is very active with uh, in the organization uh, regarding um, Marcy's Law for Illinois. Uh, she's she also created the. Um, uh, organization having to do with uh, uh, juvenile lifers um, and is a small business entrepreneur. Um, Bill is is an author and I believe uh, still uh, teaches at the uh, university level. So like I say, they're a very busy couple. So with that said, um, we're going to have them start out by um, saying, since this is a couple show, how uh, a little bit about their personal stories and how they got together. 
So welcome, Bill. Welcome, Jennifer. It's great to have you today. Thank you so much, Donna. Hi, Donna. And thank you, Delilah. We are so glad to be back. And Lady Justice, you do so much good work um, for victims. And thank you so much for, uh, as you are also a homicide family survivor, we're we're just thrilled to always connect with you. Um, so I love that you brought us in as a couple, which is fun um, for us. Uh, Bill and I met because of the crimes in our family, which is probably the most maybe horrific but maybe sort of special way to meet. Um, uh, we actually, uh, <laughs> it's a local newspaper that had a Valentine's Day contest for how did you meet your spouse. And we really? told our story and we won the free dinner at the local restaurant because we have a really unique story. Um, so Bill's son was murdered. He'll tell you about that in a second. And my sister, her husband, and their baby were murdered in Winnetka, Illinois, in 1990, and she was pregnant. And that um, that horrific uh, event uh, in our, both of our lives led us both to a conference at Boston College in 2001 called Healing the Wounds of Murder. It was sponsored by uh, Murder Victims Families for Reconciliation, and it was a wonderful event. And I was actually the president of the organization at the time, got to meet Bill on a panel that we were on together, and um, you know the the rest is history. It's it was um, very special to meet in that way. There's something about the fact that there's been murders in both of our families that makes us understand instantly some very important things about each other. But then we also had a lot of wonderful other things in common, so that was great. Well, that's and Jennifer that's always tells great. the story the best, I think. Um, but uh, it, it I, I think for me the. Uh, the most important thing was finding somebody that um, that that your story, your life history, can resonate with, uh, and share things that sometimes other people just don't understand. Uh, and this often becomes a problem with people who are dealing with traumatic loss, and mm-hmm. uh, and not just uh, in this kind of situation. Oftentimes, it's um, situations that are that are difficult all across the spectrum. Yeah, well, it's very nice to know that uh, something as horrific as homicide could could eventually even lead to romance. I mean, to me, it just seems sort of diametrically opposed. But you know, it's 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 kind of, it's really nice because you see that you have those those horrific things in common, and then you kind of see, oh, well, I like to go fishing too, or whatever, and then and then it blossoms into romance. Wow. And, you know, I think the other thing, you know, we get the difficult parts, you know, about yeah. each other more instantly than than others. And the other thing that's similar about Bill and I is that it related to the victim piece is that both of us had this reaction of wanting to do something about it after it happened. Both of us became activists. Bill wrote his book, which he'll talk about. And I, you know, I got very involved with advocacy on various causes. We both uh, worked on the gun violence prevention. Uh, we both uh, have cared uh, to oppose the death penalty because we don't like any more killing. Um, but we both worked strongly for victims' rights and for victim services. And uh, so it's it's been an amazing journey. Um, my sister, her husband, and their baby were Nancy Bishop Langert, Richard Langert, their unborn child. They were murdered on April 7, 1990 in Winnetka, Illinois, which is a prosperous suburb. The offender was a teenager, um, and uh, he is still serving life in prison at this point, um, but he is, because of Supreme Court rulings, up for resentencing. And we have, um, you know, never 
uh, gotten over that loss. You know, Donna, you know. Right. You never yeah, get yeah. over that. And um, it's, it, it motivates me every single day to look at the causes of crime and work on them and work on the impacts of crime, helping victims afterwards, which is what Marcy's Law is all about, and we'll talk about that. Mm-hmm. Great. And, Bill, you want to share about, about, about your family tragedy? Sure. Uh, when William was 16 years old, he was uh, he was on his second day at work at a fast food restaurant uh, that was uh, close to his home, and he uh, was there uh, in the evening with the manager at closing time uh, and one other young man. And uh, there was a robbery at the restaurant, and uh, William was shot and killed. Uh, at that point, uh, and then um, that's pretty much when my life changed completely. Uh, after that, uh, we um, realized that it wasn't just one person involved in the robbery. Um, it was also two young female accomplices that helped him out. One was 17 years old, one was 18 years old. So we started working on how to intervene with that population as well. Um, also, uh, illegal use of a gun, so we got involved with uh, illegal gun uh, use and uh, access. Uh, and uh, ultimately, I also tried to get into the uh, issue by writing a book about what happened to me uh, and how other people can be helped from um, the things that we learned. Uh, so that everybody going through this wouldn't have to reinvent the wheel for themselves. Uh, and that has turned out to be a very, uh, very important thing to have done. And uh, it's, uh, you know, it's hard to imagine my life any other way right now, but basically the trauma that, that happened to us uh, completely changed everything. And, you know, I got to admit, it didn't change things uh, all around. It didn't change everything to be worse. Uh, there were some things that happened that were actually um, good and beneficial, although, you know, given the chance, I'd trade them all to, to have William back and uh, be back to living my boring life. But um, it's uh, it certainly has been a, a an interesting and um, uh, challenging road uh, since all of that happened. Well, Bill is being very humble. He, he hasn't touted his book, but I will because it's amazing. The name okay. of the book is What to Do When the Police Leave, A Guide to the First Days of Traumatic Loss. And you can get it at willsworld.com. That's Will is his son, W-I-L-L, and willsworld.com. You can get his book. Um, but What to Do When the Police Leave uh, is an award-winning book. The National Organization of Victim Assistance actually in 2006 called this book the Bible of Victim Work and gave him their Victim of the Year award. And I completely agree. I actually truly fell in love with the book before I fell in love with the man, and so that was just uh, – I can say honestly, it's the best book for homicide, suicide, or traumatic death like a car accident. It's the best tool anybody can have in the country, and police departments and uh, and first responders are giving it out all over the nation. Right, and I I have it, and I heard you um, present about it. Um, and uh, Bill, would you just describe it as an actual kind of how-to book? For, oh, absolutely. Um, I wasn't uh... families, etc. Oh, absolutely. The uh, as one publisher put it, when I tried to tried to market it, uh, she said, "Oh, we got plenty of books out there about people's stories." And I said, "Well, that's not what this book is." <laughs> uh, I actually, as a teacher, uh, sat down and learned from my experience, and then turned around 
put that on paper uh, in ways that I thought were understandable and helpful and applicable to people that are going through it. Uh, and as a result, it's the only book out there that really is written from a victim's perspective that uh, gives you advice on everything from how to plan a funeral on short notice to what's happening during a, a police investigation to what happens during the crime or during uh, the trial, what happens uh, um, as, uh, as you're beginning the, sta uh, the beginning stages of grief and how that's going to impact you. Um, there are a couple of books that uh, some victims out there have been able to start putting together on their own after this, but um, I guess mine was the first, and, and that's pretty cool. The well, other thing that I love about the book is it has a whole section in it for people who are friends and family of people going through this, and it mm -hmm. gives wonderful advice to them of how they can be supportive to the person going through the agony. That that's excellent. Um, it's yeah, you know, it sounds all encompassing, and um, I'll put it up. I'll put it up on my Facebook today, and hopefully, is it available on Amazon? Uh, yes, it's available on Amazon. I, I also do bulk sales to organizations, mm -hmm. uh, police departments, uh, victim advocacy programs, anybody working with that population. Uh, you can get it directly from me at a discount uh, just by going to my website and filling out a bulk order form. Uh, we self-published it because, uh, quite frankly, there were no commercial publishers who thought it was going to um, be something they were interested in, which is kind of unfortunate for them because it really has been a, a very important book and and uh, we have sold many tens of thousands of copies to uh, to help other people um, and sadly there are uh, many more than that who actually need it uh, and right. uh, uh, you know one of the great ironies is I sit down and write a book that I really 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 wish nobody needed yeah. we, get, uh, we continue to get emails from sometimes other countries even um, uh, that will say things like, this book saved my life. So that's always amazing. Wow. That's very powerful. That's very powerful. And I um, uh, just want to say very briefly, too, that if people want to hear uh, another very good show, we've done three or four shows with Jennifer on a myriad of topics, but we also did a very good one with Bill on gun violence. He is a true expert, so... Um, if people would like to hear about that show too, they can go, they can go to my archives and, and get that. Now, speaking about power, we one of the things that you've been um, immersed in for so very long is is um, Marcy Blah, Jennifer. And if you wouldn't mind, can you give us a um, primer's uh, overview of that, and then what what is going on currently? Because some very exciting things are going on. Very, very exciting. Time for crime victims. So f first let me just tell you who Marcy is. Uh, yeah. Marcy Nicholas is a murder victim. Um, she uh, was a, a college student in California who was murdered by her boyfriend that she had broken up with. He was abusive. He was an ex-boyfriend. He was he threatened to kill himself, and if he, she didn't come over there, so foolishly she did, and he killed her instead. And only a week after she was murdered, her mother, um, um, who is just the most amazing, you know, sort of uh, matriarch of victims' rights movement in California, um, she and her brother, Henry Nicholas, walked into a grocery store after visiting Marcy's grave, where they were actually confronted by the accused murderer. He had just been, you know, he had just been arrested and imprisoned, and they had no idea that he had been released on bail. Mm -hmm. 
They mm-hmm. called up the cops. They said, how is this guy out on bail? And we aren't even informed. In fact, the mother was so scared by bumping into him that she had a heart attack later. Luckily, she did not die. Ooh. But it was awful for them because he had been threatening to them. And so they called the police. The police said, oh, we're, we're under no obligation under California law to notify the victim of the release of the accused on bail. And they that's when the family said, well, we'll see what we can do about that. And so they did, in fact, work for many years. They passed a, a, a several laws pertaining to victims, but ultimately got Marcy's Law into the California Constitution, passed into law and amended the California Constitution in 2008, making it one of the strongest victims' rights protections in the country. And mm-hmm. basically... Um, you know, it's sort of a – let's talk about what rights are, okay, what victims' rights are. Victims don't actually have rights compared to the the offenders in, in crimes. Individuals accused of a crime have a lot of constitutional protections. Um, but victims' rights uh, are not in the U.S. Constitution because at the time that the U.S. Constitution was written, there was no need for them. Victims were always included in the trials because victims were, in fact, the prosecutors. You know, if you stole my cow in 1789, <laughs> then what would have <laughs> happened is that I would have, as the victim, taken you down to the town square when the judge was riding around on his horse going on this circuit from town to town holding court, and I would have been the I, – I, as the victim, would have also been the prosecutor and made my case about how you stole my cow and then you would have ended up with eight days in the stockade or whatever. There was no need back in the late 1700s to put crime victims' rights to access to their own cases into the Constitution because they were always involved in their own cases. The issues back in the late 1700s were issues of a totalitarian British government that would imprison people without you know, without due process and would torture them or kill them for, for no reason. And so we ended up with the 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, and 8th Amendments to the U.S. Constitution all putting in these strong protections for the rights of the accused, and that was necessary at the time. But now we live in a very different era. And now we live in a time when there are professional prosecutors and professional law enforcement and a highly bureaucratized criminal justice system that has basically, over time, gradually pushed the victim further and further and further away from their own cases. They really don't even, in many cases, have information about their own cases, what's happening, when the court dates are, what they're allowed to attend, if they're allowed to be you know, protected from threats from the, the accused or his family when they're in court, um, asking for restitution, getting to make a statement at sentencing. There are actually 18 states that do not give any enumerated rights for victims in their constitutions. And we actually have several states that do, but many that do not. And we also have, of course, no victims' rights in the U.S. Constitution. And so what the Marcy's Law movement is about is equal rights for victims so that there are constitutionally enumerated rights for crime victims in every state, and then ultimately, of course, our goal is the U.S. Constitution. And there's broad support for this. This is, this is actually one of the unique issues of our time, that there's absolutely no partisan nature to it. It's got strong support unifying both Democrats and Republicans. It's already passed overwhelmingly bipartisanly in several states, including Illinois and California. And it is uh, now on the table in uh, nine other states, um, and very exciting from from Georgia to 
uh, Kentucky to North and South Dakota, Montana, Nevada, uh, Hawaii. Um, it's, it's a very exciting time, and um, we, we will have ultimately victims' rights in all 50 states because of the generosity of Marcy Nicholas's family. Um, Dr. Henry Nicholas, um, after his mother's passage, took up his mother's uh, fight for victims' rights and has made it his life work and has devoted the resources of his foundation to giving victims and their families across the country constitutional protections and equal rights. Um, So here's just a few examples of what they would get under Marcy's Law. They would be guaranteed constitutionally that they would get information about their rights. As soon as the crime would happen, they would be told that they have rights and they would be given a card that would give them contact for information for how to sign up for services or how to apply for crime victim compensation or whatever. They would also have a right to, be, to receive notification of any proceedings in the case, any major developments in the case, such as a plea bargain deal or, um, or some change in the status of the case, any procedure, uh, any, you know, like a, a arraignment hearing or a de- deposition or something. Um, they would have the right to receive timely notifications uh, regarding the, the, any changes in the uh, offender's custodial status, like they would be given advanced warning. Um, there is now in many uh, states, uh, most states, use an automated notification system to let victims know of release of the offender or some other change in their in their case. That automated system was set up by a wonderful family in Kentucky, Louisville, Kentucky, whose daughter was a domestic violence victim, and mm-hmm. the killer was let out without any notice to her. They called actually like the next day to say he had been let out, but he had already killed her by that point. He was mm-hmm. out, and within literally an hour of getting out, he killed. He found her and killed and her. You're talking about the Vine? The Vine yes, system? I'm talking about Vine. It's also known in right. some places as Savin, Statewide Automated Victim Savin, and Notification. Right. Right. Victim Information Network, that's what the Vine is. So, yeah, it's a really important service, and Marcy's Law would guarantee that every state uses timely notification in advance to to any changes to the offender's custody status. Can I ask you this question? When we went went three or four years ago for the parole hearing for the perpetrator of my dad's dad's murder, um, in terms of timely notification, uh, people uh, preparing for parole – um, the perpetrator gets up to about six months to prepare and decide and and confer with attorneys and all of that. And here in Connecticut, if we're lucky, we get one or two weeks' notice in the form of a generic letter. So what would Marcy's Law do with regard to, to defining timely notification? And why would it be, and my our good friend Michelle Cruz brought this up, why can't it be that if the if the perpetrator has all this advanced notice and gets to choose whether or not they want to do it, why why aren't the victims given as much timely notification? You know, that's that's such an excellent point because we're just asking for information. We're not asking it's it's very important that people understand that victims having rights does not mean rights to know what's going on in their case and right to be heard at proceedings. You know, that does not mean that they get to control the case or that they get to decide does the offender get in or out. These are judges' decisions. Mm -hmm. Prosecutors, judges, courts, juries, they are the ones that make the decisions. The victims do not make the decisions. 
but at least to know about it is certainly reasonable. And right. uh, it's not happening in so many places. And in fact, Connecticut's one of the better states, which is kind of, you know, it's kind of <laughs> sad that that's better. Well. But there's a lot of states that don't guarantee any notice at all. And mm-hmm. so that's what we're working on. Marcy's Law is about making sure that those constitutional protections are in place everywhere, um, certainly that they have a right to make a, a, a statement at sentencing. Now, let me give you my own personal story. My sister and her husband and their baby, when they were murdered, when Nancy and Richard were murdered, it was the most devastating time of our lives. We were numb. We were in shock. We were horrified. We were barely able to function each day. We followed along with the court, the trial. We did what the prosecutor told us to do. We came to the, we came to the proceedings faithfully every day. We worked through the news media attention and all the horror of it. And we faithfully waited for that guilty verdict, which we got, thank God. It seemed like an eternity before we got there, but we, we did get there. And then we were so, you know, so finally able to, excited that we were going to be able to make our statement, have our say, talk about Nancy and Richard and what they had meant to us and what their lives were like. And because all of the court proceeding information, it's very sterile, you know, rules of evidence and, oh, they found a blood splatter here and they found a glove there and the glass was broken in this way. You know, it's very technical information. There's nothing about the person that was killed. There's no humanity to the broader story of what was lost. And to have that story in the court record was so important to us. We got a phone call the day uh, the day before the sentencing hearing saying we're not going to be taking victim impact statements because you know it's a mandatory life sentence we're just not going to bother with it it's we don't have time oh, and so criminal. i didn't know at that time that that was a violation of 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 our rights as a family that we mm-hmm. had a right to make that statement we wanted to we had prepared them yeah. and you know now all these years later while he's mounting legal challenges we don't even have in the original transcript our feelings at the time and our description of the of the victim loss. So this really is serious. Having victims impact statements in the proceedings formally is a very important thing, not just for the victim's own sense of well-being and, and getting to be heard and finally having their voice, but really for a, a fully accurate court record. So How long it, did it take before you were able to get it into the record, Jennifer? We still haven't been able to, 26 Nothing years later. in the record? Well, there's a resentencing hearing that is going to come up now, thanks to the U.S. Supreme Court's ruling on juveniles, and uh-huh. we will make one at that time. But it's 26 years later, and we still haven't been able oh to do it yet. So it is really oh, frustrating. Awful. We we do have now in Illinois Marcy's Law passage just passed in 2014. Thank God the voters overwhelmingly, as they do in every state where it has come up, overwhelmingly 78 percent yes i mean that's like a stunning outcome in an election <laughs> nobody ever gets 78 percent yes on anything in an election and we we passed it overwhelmingly and uh, amended the constitution and now we have not only a right to make the statement but we have an enforceable component that means that if the court fails to do it like they did fail to do it back in 1991 92 actually they um now we have the ability to file a motion saying you have to look at this violation of our rights and make a ruling about whether or not we have a right to move forward so now victims have standing in their own cases and that's what marcy's law, marcy's law gives you it gives you standing at before the court in your case enough so that you can file a motion and ask the court 
to rule on on your your role in the case. So, and then cool. the final What's the right consequence is really of that. I mean, is there a con? I know there's legal standing to file a motion, but practically speaking, uh, they didn't allow you a right. Is is there any real recourse so, or consequence? So the consequence is usually a redo, um, and it doesn't have to happen very often before states finally figure out, you know, gee, we better not do this again. We had a, uh, after the passage of th- this kind of a law in Oregon in 2008, there was a man who was denied the right to make a victim impact statement at his daughter's murder hearing, and he petitioned the court and got a redo of the sentencing hearing, which has only happened one time in Oregon, and that's when all of the courts spread the word, oh, they really mean this thing, we better do it, you know, and it's not happened since that time. Um, It usually only takes once or twice before they finally figure out that that's not a, uh, you know, now that they are really serious about it. But basically the consequence is simply the procedural repair. Let me give you an example from the defender's side. Like let's say let's say that a an offender committed a, uh, let's say that an offender is uh, uh, on trial for possession of marijuana in their car, and the search that was done on their car to reveal the marijuana didn't have a warrant and there wasn't any really probable cause. So the defense attorney and the uh, the accused uh, file a motion before the court saying suppress the search, suppress the the seizure of the marijuana because there was no probable cause and there was no warrant. This was an illegal search. So that was a violation of their uh, Fourth Amendment right to a a proper search and seizure. And therefore, the repair is not some sort of punishment, but the repair is the suppression of the evidence and the elimination of the charge in the case. So it's a procedural repair. And the same thing would be true for a violation of victims' rights. Uh, it would be uh, a redo of the procedure or a change in the procedure so that the victim could then act. And Marcy's Law generally specifies that judges have to rule on the violation of the right within you know, a very short period of time, like 48 hours. There usually has to be an immediate repair. Okay, very very good information. Thank you. for. Um, is, is there... Um, with the nine states that that um, are on board, it, are there any differences, or is it, does this mean that everyone has endorsed everything about it? So you mean, are there is there opposition? Yeah, is there opposition, or is it, so they're, they're all fully endorsing it? These nine, uh, these there, nine there are there are states that are working through things like wording. How how exactly should it be worded? Um, and there is generally some concern. Um, there's always people that uh, don't want victims to have a voice, and that's usually almost always from the from the uh, the defendant side of the equation. You find uh, some pro pro offender groups, groups even like the ACLU, that oppose victims' rights in principle. They don't want mm-hmm. victims to have a voice. They believe the criminal justice system is entirely and should be entirely focused on uh, the, the accused and whether or not the accused is getting, getting due process of law. In fact, the accused is the one that stands to lose their freedom and so on. But what, the, what Marcy's Law recognizes is that victims are a part of the criminal justice system. Uh, there wouldn't be crime if there weren't victims, right? There wouldn't be um, you know, a need for, uh, for justice if there weren't victims. 
So Marcy's Law is a change in thinking, that that the criminal justice system is not all about the accused. It's about the community. It's about victims. It's about all people who are impacted by crime and that they all should have a say and they should have access to the case and information and and a right to be present and a right to participate if they have been directly affected by the case. And generally you have some states asking questions about cost. And what we have been able to successfully communicate to most folks is that the cost is negligible. This is really just a change in procedure. It's not an added, a huge added burden. Some uh, prosecutor's offices say, well, I'll have to make a whole bunch more phone calls um, well, that's a clerical level well. person's job. And they also have these automated victim notification systems now that are very inexpensive and very efficient. So it's a very minimal adjustment in proceeding, and usually it's just a difference in, in what order you do things in. Now you would have to talk to the victim maybe sooner before you cut the plea bargain and not after you cut the plea bargain. It's not really much of a change good. except in procedure. Yeah, that would be good, wouldn't it? So. <laughs> Folks can get great information and find out how to bring Marcy's yeah. Law to their state at marcyslaw.us, and that's spelled with an S, M-A-R-S-Y-S, marcyslaw.us. U-S. And you can look up your specific state in terms of what's going on there or their stance? Yep, yep. There's a map of all 50 states, and it has. Right. you click on your state, and you can find out what's going on. Mm-hmm. So uh, what what are you doing at this point in time in terms of, uh, I know it passed in Illinois, but w- what is your focus right now and what's your uh, immediate goal going forward? So, our, you know, we're working on implementing it now in Illinois, looking, talking to victims who are still um, trying to access the system successfully, trying to help um, individual cases where there are some violations of their rights still happening, making sure that they get, that they get repair. And we're also working on, um, you know, uh, I'm I'm actually traveling to and supporting other states and, and their efforts there and meeting victims and just promoting it. It's just so such an exciting time for our movement. We never have had this before in the history of victims' uh, law and victims' rights. It's a brand new phenomenon to have enforceable is, constitutional rights. It it's is. Exciting. It's very. Does this mean that in those nine states they can hit the ground running? And and do what is needed. It's not like you have to wait until 50% of the states sign on or all 50 states before everything gets enacted. But when you pass it, then you start you start doing your business. Is that right? Yeah. In your state, once your state amends their constitution, then they will develop statutes that will actually implement it. And then it's just a matter of starting to work to change that culture in your state and starting to. Um, see different treatment of victims, making sure that every single time the judge has a checklist from the bench and doesn't proceed with that hearing until the victim is found notified, make sure that there's a, all of the steps are done properly. It's just oh. it's going to make the criminal justice system work better. That, we all look forward to that. But whose job is it to educate those judges or the state legislators? I mean, you know, so that that gap is filled. Oh, oh, I have to do this extra stuff now. <laughs> you know, yes, actually, in Illinois, we just passed it. Uh, as I said, in November of 2014. What has happened in the last year is that the attorney general, who is the leading law enforcement um, uh, official in the state, has very carefully written a detailed legal handbook that is going out to every lawyer, every judge, every prosecutor um, in the state, and it's. Ah. 
gives about 80 pages of new, you know, new language, new proceedings, and what do you do if this motion is filed, and how does this procedure change? And it's all just, uh, you know, legal procedural um, improvements. And it's all, mm-hmm. I would assume in most states that that would come from the attorney general, who is, who is always the law enforcement official for the state. Okay, so they have no excuse. There's a handbook. That's right. <laughs> well, great. What's your impression of all this thus far, Delilah? I'm just wondering. You want to weigh in? Sounds great. Well, you know, the only question that I have for Jennifer is until you become a crime victim, do you see or do you feel like the general public has certain assumptions that we already have these rights? Yes, that is so true, Delilah. It is absolutely true that everybody that we, when we were working, you know, first to get it on the ballot and then to get people's, you know, get people to vote yes for it once it was on the ballot, um, people were stunned that they didn't, that these rights did not already exist. They were stunned. Well, I would think that would be a big part of, of, educating the public before a vote comes to their state to to let them know that you may assume that this is going to happen if you're a victim of crime, but it's not. And unless this bill is passed or this law is passed in your state, you, you really have essentially no rights. All 50 states have some, you know, some statutes, some mild uh, language and and I'd say maybe about twenty or so of them have strong enforceable rights either in statute or in constitution. But until they're all in constitution in all fifty states with an enforcement clause, and then the U.S. Constitution, we're just not there. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine um, uh, uh, attorneys for defendants are are very oppo- are very opposed to this. They don't want, you know, what we found here in Illinois is that they were actually, defense attorneys were actually routinely putting victims on witness lists so that they would be excluded from the courtroom and then never call them because they don't want the victims in the courtroom because they don't want the jury to see the grieving mother uh, or, or the, you know, or the rape victim. They don't want them in there. And so they just want to create the best possible environment in the courtroom for their, for their client. And so they were doing things that were really wrong. They were keeping victims from attending the trials of their own cases. And wow. so that was in Illinois, a big issue for us. And, and now we put a stop to it. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing. Wow. It's, this this has many layers to the onion here. It's It's fascinating. And I think, Delilah's point is very well made, and until we can let people know in each of our states that, yes, you have some basic rights, but you you don't have all of these, and this needs to get on the ballot right here in Connecticut and all these other states, but, you know, we, we, we need to help in this. So not only should people be looking at the website, but they should be getting involved in their state level. If there's one thing you want to do make an impact, this would be something, right, Jennifer? Yes, marcyslaw.us, M-A-R-S-Y-S-L-A-W.us, marcyslaw.us. Everybody go, and there's a great Get Involved button, and you'll, you'll see videos. You'll learn about what's going on in your state and in other states and how you can help. And thank you so much for bringing attention to this important well, movement. We, you know, it's part of what we do, and it is so important, we will. Can we um, segue a little bit to something a little different Um we we have about 20 minutes left or so, and Bill, since this is a couple show, Bill it has embarked on a very interesting endeavor. We talked 
last evening uh, regarding trauma, and uh, uh, we shared some information because we've had a lot of trauma information from our good friend, Dwayne Bowers. But, Bill, why don't you tell us about what, what you've been doing lately? Sure, uh, Donna. Um, it, it's been kind of funny because uh, once you write a book, everybody looks at you and says, so when are you going to write your next book, huh? When are you going to write your next book, huh? huh? When are you going to write your next book? <laughs> and, um, of course, an author, unless they're a professional author, <laughs> like my cousin who, who writes um, romance novels, under an assumed name, of course, um, but um, <laughs> you you sort of sit there and like, oh, my gosh, I, just, I, I wrote one book, and that was hard enough. Come on, give me a break. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, after about, um, after about, uh, well, I guess it was a couple of years ago now, um, that a, a friend of mine asked me to give a talk at a uh, at a, um, a conference that we were having at uh, the university I teach at, Dominican University here near Chicago, uh, and it was on neuroscience. And I looked at her and I said, "Why do you want me to talk about uh, talk at a, at a uh, you know a series of uh, speakers bureau um, series on um, on neuroscience?" And she said, "Well, it's going to be on the neuroscience of violence, and we want you to talk about the victim's perspective." And I said, "Well, so I had about six months to get ready for this because they were going to put me last after the neurobiologist and from uh, from our uh, university and and." Uh, uh, Adrian Rain, who uh, is out of uh, Pennsylvania, who's one of the top neuroscientists in the country and has done a lot of work with uh, neuroscience and crime and the origins of crime uh, in the brain and uh, behavior and uh, a number of other people. And so I said, well, you know what, if I'm going to talk about about this from a victim's perspective, maybe I need to know a little bit more about neuroscience than I do. Because, you know, if you go to these workshops and go to the conferences that that we often will go to, uh, there's always somebody who has a workshop on, um, uh, you know, trauma trauma and how it affects us and traumatic behavior, uh, traumatic impact on families, because it's part and parcel of what we deal with on a daily basis as victims. Uh, and um, so everybody knows, uh, I, I suppose, just about everybody has heard of the fight, flight, and freeze response and a number of these other uh, um, elements of uh, where fear takes place in the brain and the, in the uh, amygdala and how it affects our memory and the hippocampus and all of this. And, uh, and the reason that we feel all this way is because of this wonderful, what I call the crinkly bicycle helmet, the cerebral cortex that sits on top of <laughs> all of the other stuff that uh you know that developed over the years and um so you know that's about as much neuroscience as I'm going to get into right now okay so don't worry I, I'm done with that uh but okay. we um you know I started looking into this and f- here's the difference I was looking at it as somebody who came out of trauma from the inside and I guess the only way to put it is when you get eaten by the snake <clears throat> and you eat your way out, <laughs> which is what I did, um, mm-hmm. of trauma. I ate my way out of trauma from the inside, as opposed to uh, a researcher who studies people who are traumatized. Um, I began to see a lot of things that concerned me uh, about the way the whole concept of trauma was being 
addressed and how it was even being um, presented to the community, um, there is some confusion. Uh, there's a lot of follow the leader in science, no matter what field you're in. Once somebody decides something for good and for always, then everybody says, oh, okay, well, we're going to take what we did and we're going to build it on that foundation. And so now you have a foundation and now you have a first floor and somebody else comes along and builds a second floor on that. And then by the time they get up to the you know 10th or 11th floor of research, uh, they begin to realize that they built the Leaning Tower of Pisa. And you know they got to watch out because, because there were perhaps some errors at the very fundamental parts of of the base of the uh, of the building that they're working on um, and so this is kind of how trauma has has uh, the study of trauma has built up and so I you know took it upon myself to sit down and try to learn as much as I possibly could from the top people in the country who are talking about trauma uh, and there are people I think who are better at that than others and who are who have a better sense of what what needs to be studied than others. Uh, and um, I began to find uh, some amazing things that just sort of captivated me and it sort of ran away with me. So uh, I am now working on my next book, I guess. Uh, perhaps it'll have to even be a series of books. But I want to start talking about um, what I'm calling, uh, and I don't think anybody else has used this term before, and I certainly hope not because um, I, I want to use it for myself, but I want to talk about the natural brain and what our brains bring us in their basic raw natural form that we have to take those ingredients. It's like everybody has the same ingredients in, the, in their cupboards, but we all make different meals out of it, uh, and that's what makes us individual. And uh, so there are a number of things that our brains do really, really well. Um, and the one primary thing that our brains are designed to do above all else <clears throat> is not to make us happy. Uh, it's not to give us fulfilled lives. Uh, it's not to connect us with the universe. It's to keep us alive. That is the fundamental part of and the biggest part of what our brains do on a daily basis because if we don't stay alive then nothing else matters the species won't continue um we won't we won't see a day when we can live a happy life uh all of that other stuff is is are things that we need to do perhaps consciously but unconsciously our brain keeps us alive and so what happens then is our brain has certain structures that, that guarantee that when we feel fear, we're going to stay away from what makes us feel afraid. When we have a pleasant and wonderful and, and uh, beautiful experience, we're going to want to get back to that and want to do that again. Uh, and uh, this carries through every aspect of our lives. And you can't talk about those systems without talking about trauma. Um, and it, it, it's like our brains have, have a normal range of responses that help us cope with stress and, and crisis. That's going to happen whether you are living on the plains of Africa or whether you're living in an apartment building in, in New York. Uh, you're going to have stress and you're going to have crisis. But what I've seen by looking at, at the, the vast history of human, humankind is that, you know what? we're not designed based on what we're seeing in our brains and what they're capable of doing. We're not designed to live in chronic stress and chronic trauma. It mm -hmm. needs to be infrequent and it needs to be 
almost never happening. It's like having an insurance policy. You, you hope you never have a car crash, but if you do, you have that insurance there. Our brains are, are like that with, with the crisis and trauma responses that, that are set up there. They really should be insurance policies. We should never or almost never use them. Uh, and yet we're finding that we're using them uh, almost all the time. So once in a while, a, a stressor comes along, and it may rise to the level of actual trauma, and, and it affects us so deeply that it fundamentally changes um, our lives just across the spectrum, uh, how we rate to, relate to uh, each other, how we relate to our environment, and even how uh, we relate to ourselves. Um, and when this continues and disables us for an extended period of time, then we have a nice little label for it. We call it PTSD, right? right. Which wasn't even acknowledged until 1985. So for hundreds of years, thousands of years, millennia, we have, as human beings, had this trauma response that has been happening, but it wasn't until 1985 that somebody actually put a name to it so that we knew what we were dealing with. Uh, you know, back in World War One and World War Two, they were talking about shell shock. Uh, they would not um, even acknowledge that that it existed. Uh, the um, uh, the psychologists that worked with the military at that time were told that they could not even produce a diagnosis of shell shock for a soldier because they wanted that soldier back on the field and on the front lines, doggone it. And they didn't mm -hmm. want any wimpy, um, weak minded soldiers, uh, trying to get out of, uh, the tough manly job of fighting by pretending to be, um, you know, a scared little rabbit. Unfortunately, so our brain, ignore it then you're saying, right? They totally I mean, ignored it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Are you trying to, are you trying to, by compiling this, and again, you're not writing, you're compiling what the information is now, uh, right. having the, the conscious explain how the conscious brain can affect the unconscious and not, use, not have to use the trauma response as much? Well, you know what's interesting? Um, that's a really good way of putting it, the conscious brain affecting the unconscious brain, because what, what's happening with trauma is the unconscious brain affects the conscious brain, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's like you have this flood that breaks through the dam uh, because PTSD is not a normal response to ordinary stress. Uh, it is a disabling response to extraordinary stress. And because this is individually dependent on who you are, what you've been through, how your experiences have shaped your life, what kind of training you've had, obviously, uh, the police, the military first responders go through enormous uh, levels of training that none of the rest of us experience, and, and that can mitigate their, um, their response to uh, traumatic events. Because, uh, again, you want people in highly, uh, sometimes highly dangerous and highly uh, difficult situations, you want them to be able to continue to function. Otherwise, the scared rabbit part of your brain will take over. Uh, and you don't want that to happen when you're fighting a fire or when you are, you are in a war zone. Um, and, and I believe what you, you've said there, that uh, to take the conscious brain then and use it to, to uh, impact the unconscious brain is one of the cores of, of uh, many of the, um, uh, the therapies that we're starting to come up with uh, with regards to trauma. Uh, cognitive behavior therapy, for example, uh, the whole point about the word cognitive is that that's the part of your brain that thinks. 
So we're going to work on thinking our way through this. Um, there are other um, therapies that, that just simply being aware of what's happened to you and how trauma has affected you can completely change your life. Um, I had a woman come up to me after I was uh, doing a trauma uh, talk. Actually, it was uh, it was in Connecticut at the Rigor Conference a couple years ago, and mm-hmm. we had just talked about how trauma actually stamps an imprint on your brain, so that if you survive, when you survive, the technique that you use, the strategy that you used, whether it was running, whether it was fighting, or whether it was freezing in place waiting for your death. Um, which is a bit of a confusing concept, but uh, but it, freeze is the moment when you fully expect to die. There is no other point in the traumatic experience where a freeze takes place, but that is what it really is, is when you are expecting to die at the very end of the traumatic experience um, <clears throat> and your brain just overloads with, with you know, it doesn't it doesn't expect to live. Why does right. it care where it re- records all these memories that are coming along, right? Um, but whichever one of those three you wound up using to survive, your brain remembers that and says, it worked the last time, so we're going to use it again. And this can be critical with people who are dealing with sexual assault, for example, and wound up having to endure the sexual assault. And their brains naturally froze. Uh, and locked into place, and they dissociated, and they, you know, literally were yeah, at yeah, an end-of-life really. moment. And this is this is now beyond the crisis response system. It's now beyond the trauma response system. Now you're into the death response system, really, uh, and your brain is is preparing to die. And uh, but they didn't. They lived because what that person wanted from them, he didn't have to kill him for. Right. This is the case right. with a lot of our traumas today. So are you uh, and as a result, to bring some of this to lay in terms of these insights that you that you're learning, is that your purpose in in writing this book? It it is because when I explained this to the and and the thing I think that really brought it home to me was when I explained this in um, this trauma imprinting, which Bessel van der Kolk talks about in his books. Uh, he's he's a wonderful uh, researcher on trauma out of Boston. I explained this to to uh, the group. Two women came up to me and they said, "I had always wondered. I was a victim of sexual assault, and I've always wondered why I can't have uh, you know intimate relationships, and I've always wondered why I responded this particular way when anything you know uh, agitating and crisis like comes along, um, because I just freeze and I, I can't move. And I was like, now I know why this is happening." And that put that, and this that. was 30 years before for one woman. Wow. She was my age when she, you know, when when Is we were right? at the conference. And for 30 years she had been held a slave to this in her life uh, because trauma had this sub, subconscious impact on her. Her brain had no idea consciously what was going on. And then she moved into a place where she just was totally dysfunctional and uh, and couldn't figure out why. And then that set her on a path to understanding. And understanding then can bring her to a uh, uh, to a better uh, wow, a better that, outcome. That's very powerful. Yeah. So you you kind of opened the door for her in terms of making her understand. So you know that that's wonderful. You know those, those kinds of insights. And so we we look forward to you persevering on that and. And I, it sounds like it will be a, a wonderful and very useful book again. Um, you know, we, we always try to corner the market on something unique. 
Um, I do too. So um, I was just wondering in our in our next like five minutes or so, each of you, I uh, I always like to ask my guests um, with regarding the content that we have displayed. What what message would you like to get a, across first and foremost to our audience to take away? from the hour that you think is most important if you had to distill it down, so to speak? Jennifer. Um, I I would say that the most important thing for folks to know is that anyone can be a crime victim, anyone. It could happen. It's one of the most universal things that can happen to anybody. They can be a crime victim at any time unexpectedly, and it can change your life. And so you want to make sure that our system has a place that will protect you. The criminal justice system should not take a victim who's already been victimized and re-victimize them, which is what we hear so many times, is that when these things happen to them in the court case, it actually hurts worse sometimes even than the crime because you expect the court system to treat you fairly and to include you and, and so that you can be protected and to be heard and to know about what's going on. Information is everything. So making sure that in your state and ultimately federally that there are protections, legal protections for crime victims since anyone can be a crime victim at any time and that the, the system should not be re-victimizing you. They should go to marcyslaw.us, M-A-R-S-Y-S, marcyslaw.us, and they should get involved with and support the passage of Marcy's Law in their state so that they can get protections and, and help us sign on to this national movement that we're building towards uh, ultimately amending the U.S. Constitution. Yeah, that's great. If if someone is listening and they don't have your contact information, if they'd like some some advice from you, do, do you have a, a way to, to get in touch? Yes, you can reach me at IllinoisVictims.org. Illinois, uh, spelled out the state, Victims.org, and I have my contact information there. Okay, great. Bill, what about you? I think we need to learn as a society to to live in chronic safety rather than in, in chronic danger. We need to be more aware of how trauma is so prevalent in our society, especially at the child level. Uh, child maltreatment and trauma has been shown to cause enormous problems with behavioral disorders that arise in uh, in uh, teenage um, in their teenage lives and in their adult lives it shortens people's uh, uh, lives with uh, um, uh, chronic illnesses later but it also can push children to criminal behavior and, uh, and antisocial behavior. So uh, we want to reduce the amount of trauma and stress in our society rather than increasing it uh, and learn to cope in more healthy ways. And, and hopefully we will we'll all be able to uh, move towards that. Well, I, I totally agree. And I'm, I'm very inspired and I'm always enlightened by the two of you. Uh, it's it's amazing, and we're going to be sure to uh, share the show as much as possible and get some the people we talked about connected with you if you would like that. Um, Delilah, Sounds great. What, what would you what would you have to say uh, in terms of parting thoughts for today's show? Well, once again, we've got an hour <laughs> packed with information, very very yes. good information. Um, you know, not just for crime victims, but for the average citizen out there who who may or may yeah. not, if they're lucky, they will never be a crime victim. But, the, you know, the way things are going and the statistics show that your your likelihood is very, very 
large. So I, I urge everyone to listen to the show, make notes, go to the websites, get the information, and thank you both Jennifer and Bill for yeah. um, doing a couple show with us. I think it was excellent. Yeah. Can I say I, something I very, very quickly? When you introduced us, you introduced us as a power couple, and you, um, by listing off all the things you did, it, it almost sounded like we're superhuman, but we're not, Donna. We're just people who stay focused. Um, we stay motivated. We find things that interest us, and, get, mm-hmm. and we get involved. Anybody can do things the way we do them, and they should be getting involved as even if it's just the secretary of their grief support group or their local compassionate friends group or parents of murdered children group. Anybody can get involved. Go to the conferences, learn more, uh, and just simply become active because that's one of the other ways that you can move through your sense of helplessness for what's happened to you to a sense of being a victor rather than a victim. Absolutely. I didn't mean to paint you unfairly. You are our <laughs> average goes in certain ways, but you're very intensive. Like me, we, we are cut from the same cloth and we do a lot of things, but it doesn't have to be to that level of intensity. It's baby steps and you find one thing you do very well. You know, I work as a Q Center state coordinator as well as all of my other things. So just pick something that that fits your style, fits, your, fits what, what you're able to do right now. So very important point, Bill. Thank you. Um, you, you know, didn't mean to paint you as superhuman. But oh, I, hey, I, hey, I like being a power couple. <laughs> <laughs> I still admire Oh, don't worry. We'll put it on a resume. <laughs> okay. Well, be sure to just pass around this show so, so that everyone knows, okay? Will you Lady Justice, you are the best. Well, thank you so much. And stay in touch with us. And, uh, We'll see you on the flip side, okay? Sounds great. Thanks for having me. Bye, Donna. Bye, Donna. Have a good weekend.